Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are keeping score in an incredibly frenetic week. Decided that this would be a time to give you some perspective from all of the commissioners that we have interviewed, a cross-section basically of global sport. Best of interviews from leagues that shape the sports culture, domestic and abroad. Time for our best of, and it's uh, time for dealing with some of the commissioners around these leagues. Let's start with one, Oliver. Good luck. He had a perspective as the owner and founder of the Houston Dynamo. He was the uh, commissioner, basically, of the World League of American Football. He was a guy who was an athletic director at University of West Virginia and uh, 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 an NCAA maven. But now he announces this week eight teams in the NFL, the New York Guardians, the St. Louis Battlehawks, the L.A. Wild. Catch the Tampa Bay Vipers, the D.C. Defenders, the Seattle Dragons, Houston Roughnecks, the Dallas Renegades. The point is, one of the best in the industry. Here's Oliver Luck. We have the commissioner that presides over all of football with us today. Incredibly proud, a long and illustrious career. Uh, Paul, uh, Roger, no, it's Oliver Luck. Ah, Oliver, Oliver Luck, the commissioner of the XFL, and I'm certainly not cynical about it. Don't mean to minimize it. You take a look at some of the information. I'm serious about it. This is a league that's on the way to success, largely because of Oliver's even temperament, certainly the capital, but his bridge building skills as well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thank you. The morning of June 4, June 5, whatever it is, 2018, really life-changing for you for a lot of reasons. Vince and you had a lot of conversations before that, but that was your announcement. So give me your mindset as to why you did it and how you feel now. Sure. So I was working at the NCAA, as you know, you know, uh, the EVP of regulatory affairs, basically a number two to uh, to Mark Emmert, whom I really appreciate. He has a hard job. It's tough running college athletics. And I was aware that Vince had made an announcement last January that the league was going to be relaunched, but I didn't really pay much attention to it, quite honestly. So one of his guys reached out and said, hey, would you take a meeting with Vince? And I said, sure. Uh, you know, I didn't know him, didn't met, I had never met him. I uh, was sort of impressed with his entrepreneurial bent in building up WWE into a, you know, publicly traded billion dollar a year company. It's remarkable. So he reached out to you? He reached out to me out of thin air and, uh, you know, I ran NFL Europe, so there's not, it's a pretty select group, you know, that's run professional football leagues and and started them from scratch, right? So uh, anyway, I sat with him and over the course of a couple days and, you know, I wanted to really understand why he wanted to do this and would he do it, you know, as the Brits would say, in a proper fashion, right? Uh, Because the first time around wasn't good. Football wasn't good. It was gimmicky. And, you know, I I wouldn't want to be part of a bad football league with lots of gimmicks. I don't think the American public likes gimmicks, right? right? Particularly when it comes to something important like football. football, So, um, you know, he convinced me that uh, he was going to, you know, hire somebody that knew football and could build that league the way it should be built. And, you know, everything I've experienced in the last six, seven months as I've been on board has been just that. He's given me all the rope I need, as I say, to hang myself. Presumption of, and you're not, presumption (laughs) of uh, he hate you, days and now you have until early 2020 to prove that wrong in eight cities. His comment or yours about reimagining football, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so what he wants is a up-tempo game, right? Um, fewer stoppages, fewer breaks, right? You know, the, the college and pro balls sometimes can go on forever, right? Well, there's a good reason they're commercial. Well, that's that, that's that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But, yeah, think of all the you know, split screen that's now yeah. taking place, right? So, you know, up-tempo game, um, you know, uh, he wants to be innovative in, in what we do, right? So, uh, you know, shorter breaks, so and get it all done in three hours. I remember back in the old days, you know, 1970s or the 80s or the 90s when, you know, a game just really got done under three hours. Right. So, uh, I think, you know, the talent pool of players and coaches is pretty deep, pretty rich, pretty broad. And then we can we can find guys that are able to, you know, deliver on that promise, right? So, um, we've got, uh, very soon we'll be announcing our broadcast partners, 
uh, we have four games a weekend, right? Eight, eight teams, four games a weekend. All those games will be broadcast, every last one, either terrestrially or fully distributed cable. So we're going to have multiple, some... Multiple partners. Multiple partners. We're going to have some great broadcast deals. We're not far from naming uh, our head coaches, right? Uh, I've got four signed and uh, four more to come because uh, I'm acting like an, the owner of each one of these teams, right? Really? Because, you know, Vince owns them. And, and it's not as if you're not experienced doing it. Yeah, I, I hire coaches over yeah, in Europe, right. you know, uh, multiple times, right, right. with our league. So uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's coming together. We have the gift of time. I wouldn't have taken this job, Rick. You know, Vince said, you got three months and we got we got to play. I said, nope, don't want it. <laughs> you know, yeah. you need time. You need time in any part, startup. Part of it, yeah, any startup. Any startup. But part of it is the nuts and bolts of the widgets and everything you need to do stadiums all. And part of it is the reimagining, the reimagining. That's right. Basically. That's right. So we've taken all these ideas. We have a different kickoff we're looking at. We have a different punt we're looking at. We're looking at a 25-second clock versus a 40-second clock. We're looking at a different overtime, right? We're looking at having an eighth referee. Yeah. <laughs> what a nice, novel idea, yeah. you know? That, is it replay? Is, yeah, yeah, exactly. So all that stuff. But you have to test it as well, you know? And so we're testing it already with uh, junior colleges back in December of this past year. We're working with the Spring League. Uh, might be yeah. familiar to you. The New Call Football League. Right. These are all, you know, we basically borrow these these uh, league's players for three or four days yeah. and run 55 of our new kickoffs to make sure we've got it right and, you know, punts and all that kind of stuff. You, you th- I've always found it interesting. My dad was a chemical engineer and he used to preach about the importance of R&D to DuPont, where he worked. Think about the NFL, $14, $15 billion a year company. There's not much R&D going on, yeah, <laughs> right? right? You know, or college football, right. right? Very popular, but not much R&D going So we want to make sure we test these things as best we can before we, you know, etch them in our rule book. Right. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you know, would say, what, what gives you the reason? You've had the presumption of failure. You know, tell us why this is. Sure. Uh, it's really just a couple things. Capital, money matters, right? Any startup and the events is putting uh, a minimum of 500 million bucks behind this venture. Time, which, you know, which we, we, we have and the ability to plan. Uh, very powerful partners, which, you know, we'll be announcing very soon. And I think the other thing is this, discipline decision-making. So, you know, think about the USFL. I remember going to Houston Gambler games. The place, is, the place was rocking, right? The old Astrodome. If they, yeah, Jerry Argovitz, if they had stayed in the spring, had disciplined decision-making, that would be a very valuable property today. But they didn't. Right. right? They made... Talk about Donald Trump or no, we shouldn't. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they moved to the fall. That was a bad decision. Lack of decision-making yeah. discipline. But uh, that's the vision we have, right? Yeah. So, you know, you build... Lamar Hunt was uh, you know, very interested in NFL Europe when I was running the league. Right. Uh, and Lamar used to say to me, Oliver, you always have to remember who you are, but more importantly, who you're not. So we have to remember who we're not. We're not the National Football League and never will be, right? But we can be the XFL and build our league in the spring, bind our own business, if you will, have good relations with everybody, right, in the football world, because I think it's all important. Uh, but I think we can build up uh, brands that people kind of like and watch and follow. So what about MLS? And then we'll- oh, I, I'm a huge fan of what Don Garber has done. You know, he, if you go back and look at where they were when he took that job in, I don't know, two, 2000 maybe, where they are today, it's, it's incredible. The value of the franchise is the quality of the league. It's got a ways to go still. Still has got to figure out how to break that TV question, right? You know, it's not destination viewing for the vast majority of people. And that's that's a, that's a challenge. NFL is. And XFL hopes to be destination viewing. But, you know, MLS has to kind of in, increase the opportunity for, for the TV broadcast and then expand their audience. Um, what does it feel like when people stop you on the street and say, uh, how's Andrew? Can you get me to Andrew? Well, they say, uh, tell Andrew I got him on my fantasy team, so he needs to throw a bunch. You know, I say, you think he cares about that? <laughs> I mean, I really, I really, I really, no, no, that's, that's the question. That right. That's yeah. the question I get. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I said, hey, I'm great. Good, good job, but, you know, I'm not well, going to. Gentlemen, that context, <laughs> hey, by the way, he is one of our uh, contributors to the Sport Business Handbook. You hear a lot more about it, but, you know, key people in the industry, uh, Paul Tagliabue is in there, Steve Russ in there, and on and on and on. So uh, it's as good as it gets. Uh, Andrew Luck, oh, excuse me, Oliver Luck, thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. Rick Carl, speak with you soon. Oliver Luck is great. Let's transition to the NBA. David Stern has been an interviewee. Um, Adam Silver has been an interviewee. Mark Tatum, who's number two in command at the the NFL, has shepherded the marketing program, the international growth program. And just this week, Steph Curry travels to Washington to announce he's sponsoring the creation of a men's and women's golf team at Howard University. Why is that relevant? Well, the NBA is overseas. It is diverse. It is domestic. As well, one of the main reasons for that is Mark Tatum's longevity with the NBA. Here is our interview we did a couple of years ago with Mark Tatum. We start this 
podcast telecast with a very unique individual. Sorry about the long introduction. No problem. Mark Tatum, Deputy Commissioner of the NBA, storied career, very important in the NBA. NBA couldn't do without him. How's that? Thank you, Rick. I appreciate that introduction. Appreciate it. I, used, I set the stage for this finals, but give me a 30-second elevator speech about the health of the NBA. The health of the NBA has never been better. Here we have the two best teams in the NBA competing for a world championship between the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James, multiple-time MVP, one of the best players to ever play the game, uh, versus these Golden State Warriors, the defending champions here in the Bay Area, uh, Steph Curry, the, the reigning MVP, and so it's just a terrific matchup that fans around the world are excited about. So around the world, we'll have an interesting broadcaster in a couple of minutes, but 215 countries, 47 languages, yes. where are you not now that you want to go? <laughs> we are everywhere in the world that we want to be, quite frankly. In 215 countries and territories, we have 100 players in our league who started on NBA rosters this year. And in this finals alone, there are nine international players from five different countries. So again, the, the international community is well represented in this finals and in the NBA. Mark Tatum, Deputy Commissioner NBA. You know what I find interesting too is you're always going to be prolific with corporate sponsorships. There's always the Coke-Pepsi deal. That came out well for you. There's always other deals, AB, that came out well for you. But to find Tissot as the official timer of the NBA and getting $200 million for that, that's pretty cool. Well, I think the thing that's so great about Tissot is that what we did is we came up with an idea together with them, and it was a business solution for our shot clocks. And so they have this expertise when it comes to timing and Swiss timing, and so we integrated them into our shot clock. They're uh, redoing our entire timing system, and so it was a true win-win relationship from an NBA perspective and from a marketing, branding, business perspective with TISO. That is brilliant. Did Mark Tatum think of that, David Stern think of that, or Adam Silver think of that? <laughs> it, <laughs> it's it, a team effort. Right? A, it is absolutely <laughs> a team effort, but we have been in discussions with them for uh, a little while, and, and again, what, the, our approach with all these partners is really starting with, what is it that you're trying to solve? What business problem can we help you solve? And that's how we came to this mutual conclusion. So, just for kicks, you do a $24 billion nine-year television deal, ABC, ESPN, Turner, and the like. Um, the leverage you had was great, but to build the brand with television, especially in this world of vertical integration, that's not easy to do. Correct. And, and the, the nice thing about this is there are extensions of partnerships that we've had for a long time. Our partnership with Turner is one of the longest in the industry between a sports property and a TV network. And so we've been partners for many, many years with both ABC, ESPN, and TNT. And this really speaks to the value of live sports content. Do you like the jersey patches? I, I love the jersey patches. I think it's a great opportunity for global brands to get even more deeply involved with the NBA. I think that the thing that's going to be um, interesting about this and how it's going to benefit the fans is that there's going to be more of an investment from these companies who are investing in these jersey patches to promote the NBA, to promote the brand, to create experiences for consumers. You sold it on the basis of new found revenue as opposed to cannibalizing existing revenue sources, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a new piece of inventory. We think this is going to bring new entrants into the category of sports marketing and specifically the NBA. Yeah. And the other issue, though, the huge elephant in the room, player salaries are up to $6 billion. It was 57%. It's now 51 We've got an opt-out opportunity a year and a half from now. Why would anybody want to opt out of this agreement? It's a great question. I mean, we're focused on this partnership. We're focused on growing revenue and growing the pie. Uh, and so we're having great conversations with Michelle Roberts, the executive director in the National Basketball Players Association. And we're hopeful that, um, that it won't come to that. In this age of political incivility, let alone instability, uh, are the substantive issues uh, winning out? It, it sounds like the rhetoric is toned down a little bit from a year ago. Oh, very much so. Again, business is great. Um, uh, we have a terrific partnership with the Players Association. And so there are going to be tweaks that uh, you know, both parties are, are always looking to make and have discussions about. Um, but we're very optimistic about the future of our partnership with the Players Association. By the way, we are so lucky because when Mark comes, he brings Chase Kressel from NBA Communications, who, by the way, is our executive producer of this. He doesn't know it. we got two more interviews left. <laughs> so he's going to be standing there holding that until his arms are sore. But that's what happens when you're with number two. So what do you say 
to finally to the worldwide audience who's watching this on Facebook and Reuters about where the NBA is and where it's going? Well, the NBA, like I said, this is the best it's ever been in terms of the competition on the court. Um, these players just compete at a level that is just amazing to watch. I, as a fan, am so excited to be here uh, and to watch these two teams compete. And I think the fans around the world are going to be treated to a wonderful contest tonight. By the way, Mark Tatum, um, academic entrepreneur, very successful in earlier life. Are you liking what you're doing? I love what I'm doing. It's, this is my dream job. I played sports growing up, played throughout college, and for me to be able to work in the business of sports, it's a dream come true. Kim Mandera of NBA Communications here. You know, interesting, when Mark walked over here, it's like the, the Pope, like the water party. It used to As we transition from Mark Tatum, there is nobody better, and nobody certainly has been in the saddle as a commissioner longer than my friend Gary Bettman. He shepherded the growth of the NHL from an unprecedented uh, $50 million franchise fee years ago to now over $500 million as Seattle takes center stage as an expansion uh, uh, applicant and an expansion entry into the NHL. The Vegas story, the renaissance of the St. Louis Blues, the Washington Capitals winning in the interim, all of those are taken to the greater level uh, from a perspective that only Gary Bettman has. We caught up with him a couple of times. Here is the best of Gary Bettman. Do you remember the song, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston? Yes, I do. Well, let me tell you why it's important. When you were appointed as commissioner February 193, that was the song that was number one on the charts. It makes us feel both old, doesn't it? Actually, in the quiet moments when you and I together, you sing it to me on a regular basis. <laughs> you are a senior statesman in the league and senior statesman in sports. And when you went to Cornell undergrad and you were just getting through your career, did you ever think that, that you'd ever be running a $4 billion hockey operation and be the longest standing commissioner in the sport? and longest-standing commissioner in North American sports? Well, you know, the answer to that question is very easy. If, if I were to say yes, you'd either think I was lying or insane. Uh, but the fact of the matter is no. You know, I went, I went to Cornell. I was in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations, had a wonderful, wonderful undergraduate experience there, went to NYU Law School, and went to one of the big New York firms. I, I had started out to be a lawyer. I was always a hockey fan. I was always a sports fan. But uh, I never imagined that that this is what things would turn into. Uh, the, the great news about being in sports, particularly being at, NHL, at the NHL, is you have an opportunity to, to forge relationships uh, with wonderful people, and that is what makes the job exciting, stimulating, and fun. All right, you can do it. Give me your 30-second elevator speech assessment of the overall health of the game. The game itself, what the players do night in and night out, has been nothing short of spectacular. Our competitive balance is probably the best, not only in our history, but in all professional sports, and you're witnessing that in these incredible playoffs. And the business of the game has never been stronger, never been bigger, and that's a testament, first and foremost, to having the best fans in all the sports. All right, let's get specific. Let's talk about TV. You got a couple of game sevens. You got a weekend to yourself. NBC TV is happy. Rogers is happy. Canada is happy. International is happy. What's up with TV? Television's good. It's making everybody happy. Uh, the coverage of the game, particularly in the United States, uh, has never been more extensive. NBC does a phenomenal job, both principally on NBC and on the NBC Sports Network, and in the early stages of the playoffs. They use their other outlets to ensure for the first time in our history over the last three, four years that every game of the playoffs is televised on a national basis in the United States. Uh, their promotion, their coverage, everything they do is first rate, and it's brought the game to more people in the United States than ever before. In Canada, you know, we, we are the preeminent television property, and Rogers is doing a phenomenal job giving fans wall-to-wall coverage. Uh, we are very fortunate to have two great partners for our national packages, both in Canada and the United States. Well, let's talk about Canada. You've got three of the top teams net worth-wise. You've got uh, enlightened management, exchange rate coming around. You've got good play. How have you turned it around in Canada? 
Well, first, first of all, we don't pay a whole lot of attention to the Forbes numbers on the valuations because they don't have access to the financials of any of the clubs. You know, it's a bit of a shot in the dark. I suppose, if anything, it shows trending, and the trending is that franchise values are higher than they've ever been. You know, when, when people focus on our game, when you look at it in Canada, uh, there's nothing comparable, I think, for any sport anywhere in the world to the relationship that our Canadian fans have to our game. And it's almost breathtaking to see that level of connection. And while we have great fans throughout the world and great fans, avid fans, I think more avid than any other sport in the United States, the fact is our fan base isn't as large as a percentage of the population in the U.S. as it is in Canada, but the fan base is growing. It's growing day by day. And, and that's a testament to the fans we have, to new technology, to what NBC has been doing and what we do with our sponsors and business partners. Which is more important to you, the fact that the revenue was about $400 million bucks when you took over in 93 to nearly $4 billion now, that franchises are worth nearly a half a billion dollars now, up 20%, or that you've had labor peace since 2005? You know, I have a saying that, that drives people crazy around here that everything's related to everything else. The fact is we, we were in 93, a little over $400 million. You know, we're approaching roughly $4 billion. You know, do the math. We've been talking about what the cap is likely to be. So, you know, it's in that ballpark. But the fact of the matter is everything starts with the health of the game on the ice. And uh, we have a system that works, that creates incredible competitive balance, that gives fans of whatever team you want to root for the hope that your team can make the playoffs. And every team has that hope. And once you make the playoffs, anything can happen, and that's what we're witnessing. We're better able to connect fans to the game. We're getting more exposure and promotion, particularly in the United States, than ever before. And so all the pieces of the puzzle are important when you're growing the game and the business of the game. Is 30 teams too many or just about right? All of our teams are in the best shape they've ever been in. Couples still have some work to do, but our ownership situation is, is the strongest. Franchises are the most stable they've ever been. Let's talk international. You expanding, obviously, across the pond, but our Thomson Reuters audience ought to know and wants to know, what about the Olympics? What's your process today? We haven't given much thought to the Olympic process. We're currently focused on bringing back the World Cup, which we'll do in September of 16, and that'll be a great tournament. We do international efforts, events, in conjunction with the Players Association. We're joint ventures in doing that. And uh, over the last few years, until Don Fear took over the union as executive director, there was a lot of instability, so we weren't able to pursue many of the initiatives that we wanted to. Now that the uh, union is stabilized, we're working together, and I think the World Cup will be the foundation that's our jumping-off point for doing a whole lot of other things. We're a sport with a great history and tradition relative to uh, international play and international national competition, more so than perhaps any of the other North American sports leagues. Roughly 25% of our players, some of the most elite players in the world, come from outside of North America, and we're, we're going to uh, make sure that our reach continues to grow outside of North America. You get along with Don Fear? Are you planning for the future now? Yeah, no, we, we're, we're in the midst of a long-term collective bargaining agreement. The union has never been stronger or more stable uh, in recent years, and that's a good thing. And so uh, we're able to work together and engage in a number of initiatives that will uh, benefit fans and hopefully grow the game as well. You're known as a franchise bulldog. You save franchises that are, that are worth saving. You'll go to bat for those markets like uh, Phoenix, but it doesn't always work. Uh, look at Atlanta uh, going to Winnipeg. Uh, in that context, what about the Florida Panthers? Florida's in a rebuild. Uh, there, there were some fundamental things that had to be addressed and fixed. And the good news is, under Vinnie Viola's ownership, the commitment and the resources are there to put the right things in place. The team is more competitive than it's been in some time, and the response from the community has been quite strong. Which criticism do you find most unfair, even if it's inaccurate, that you've attempted to Americanize the game to the detriment of Canada, or that you expand into the Sun Belt at the expense of more traditional hockey markets in Canada or the northern U.S.? You know, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. The fact of the matter is we're trying to make the game stronger, bigger, uh, everywhere it is. The fact is I was instrumental in instituting 
the Canadian Assistance Program in the late 90s, early 2000s, when, when there were problems with the Canadian franchises. We want the game strong wherever it is. We're excited about the, the future prospects of our game everywhere, but we focus foremost on the places where we are, which are Canada and the United States, and whatever else we may do, including worldwide, we, we know where the priority is. So if you were commissioner for a day and you could wave a magic – oh, oh, you, you are commissioner for longer than a day. So if you wave a magic wand and you didn't have to worry about building consensus, what major change would you make? I don't know. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, that that's fantasy land. There are no magic wands. Things require consensus. There's no magic bullets in anything. It's all about hard work. It's a great time to be a hockey fan, and that's what uh, drives me more than anything else. Are you traveling less and enjoying life more? Uh, traveling lots and enjoying life. I love what I do, and while travel's part of what I do, it's not something that that I find to be unduly burdensome. Uh, it's fun to get out, see uh, how organizations present their games in their own arenas, to interact with fans everywhere we go. That That's part of the fun of what I get to do. Where is Gary Bettman five years from now? Uh, if I feel the way I do today... I think there's a song that goes like that. I'll still be doing the same thing. I love what I do. It's, a, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. It's a great challenge. And there are great opportunities. And as long as the Board of Governors is, is happy with me and I have the same level of interest and energy and commitment, then we'll keep doing this. Well, you see it's the beginning of the football season and the NFL clearly and Lowe's signs a new licensing deal with the Dallas Cowboys launching an online store with more than 10,000 NFL licensed items. The Lowe's sponsorship, very important. The reason we lead with that, by the way, this week is because it couldn't have come about without the the relationship between Jerry Jones and his family and Paul Tagliabue. Paul Tagliabue, commissioner for 16 years, lawyer now at Covington and Burling. Uh, he's certainly earned everything he's gotten. Uh, during his time in the NFL, the growth of franchises far outpaced this S&P uh, stop, stock market, and Paul Tagliabue has a perspective that basically no one else has had. And as we see all of the issues regarding the NFL, it was important to catch up with Paul Tagliabue a couple of years ago and hear what he has to say. The best of, ha- best of has to include former NFL commissioner Paul Tagliabue. So 69, 20 years in, at Covington and Burling, um, you actually began the pioneering of corporate lawyer working for a league to commissioner uh, David Stern, Gary Bettman. Talk about the transition. And at some point when you were a lawyer, did you ever think, boy, I'm going to run this league? To the last point, the answer is no. I never thought I would run the league. And, uh, you know, the transition was was really fairly easy because I had been immersed for 20 years as outside counsel. But maybe more important, I had a great teacher and and tutor in Pete Roselle. So he he let me know how to do things, and I followed his his playbook. Over the last 20 years, if you invested in an NFL franchise, had the capability of doing it, your values would go up year over year, according to Forbes, about 11.6%. If you invested in the stock market, the Standard and Poor's, it'll go up 4.5%, testament to the structure, but also your leadership. Go run the stock market. But more important than that is that you have a viable business, and its biggest metric for owners is increasing franchise values. What do you, what, what's your perspective on that? Well, my perspective is that we were fortunate in the, in the 90s mostly, but also in the beginning of the 21st century to, to get some things in place that had to be put in place. One, one of the most important was, this, was free agency and the salary cap. Another was uh, diversification in television, you know, moving beyond ABC, CBS, and NBC and moving into cable in an intelligent way, leaving most of the games on broadcast television, moving into with ESPN, moving with DirecTV into the satellite, and taking advantage of the technology that exploded in the 80s and 90s, and now the explosion is really accelerating. How about gambling? When I was working with you and we talked about how to put the core of stadium financing together, there was the admonition of, you know, we have a Chinese wall relative to to uh, um, uh, uh, Indian land, Indian gaming, casino sponsorships, Vegas. There, the whole issue is now clearly blurred, and the Raiders are going to Vegas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, where is the where's the when was the tipping point when all of this was acceptable or was it gradual? And, and how, where's, the, where's the ceiling? Are we going to have uh, uh, casinos in, in stadiums, for example? Well, I think the tipping point has come about because of a couple of things. Number one is the public acceptance of gambling. Uh, 
going back in time, there wasn't that level of public acceptance that there is today. It, it, sometimes for considerations of public policy, sometimes for personal considerations about what's a, what's a what does gambling represent, yeah. other than the tax on the, on the low-income people in the United States. But secondly, I think is the technology and, and the transparency of gambling as it is today. And you know, I've talked to people who said that the, the concern about athletes being induced to fix games or throw games, which happened to me when I was playing at Georgetown. We had a game where the other, the other side took money from bookies to not to beat the point spread. Uh, the feeling is that that can be managed now with the transparency and the data analysis that's available. So I think those two things on parallel tracks contributed to the tipping point, which the Supreme Court not only reached the tipping point, but hit it with a hammer with its recent decision saying that the, the federal law that limited gambling to one state or two states was, was not legal. And look how prolific the revenues will be, even relative to team valuations in the future. I hear a lot of different estimates. Some of them are sky high, some of them are not so sky high. It's going to depend on uh, whether there is congressional legislation and what kinds of restrictions and limitations are put on, put on the gambling for, on sports. Totally understood. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is an exclusive that you probably didn't know before, but I have visual evidence. Um, I found you in South Africa researching the viability of an NFL expansion team uh, in Cape Town. Is that, is that, is that correct? Well, you found me in Cape Town uh, in June of this year, and I was very interested in uh, football down there and uh, what the great game that Nelson Mandela yeah. talked about and, and the ability of sports, including football, to bring people together. But it was not uh, for an NFL experience. No, I, I, of course I'm kidding, but we, you know, it's a world coincidence. We found each other on respective uh, trip to Robben Island. But a segue into uh, – it was great – seeing you there, but the segue into expansion, uh, NFL in, in, in London, NFL in Canada, NFL in Mexico, um, NFL has one-off games. Talk about that generally. Well, you know, I think that the, uh, the one-off games are likely to continue for a while, maybe for a long while, because the idea of having a division uh, outside of the United States with long-distance travel, I, I don't think is realistic. And it may not be realistic in the current environment to think of a league that's got more than 32 teams. So I think the the London experiment might be extended to Europe. I've read about the possibility of games in Germany, which was the heart of NFL Europe when we had it. But uh, I think that uh, it's not gonna, you're not going to see divisions and conferences outside the United States. What you could see would be feeder leagues mm -hmm. in Canada, Mexico, and Europe over time. And I think that would be a great thing for the sport. Uh, World League of American Football 2, basically? Yes. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah, okay. All right, let's go off the field for a couple of minutes. We talked uh, earlier in, in life about the new rules and what's happening and, and uh, you know, are we are we tackling right, the roughing the passer issues? Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think the start, when you discuss those issues, you have to start with the competition committee. And the competition committee has been a great feature of the NFL structure. You know, some fans know it well. They could tell you who's on the competition committee. They can tell you when it meets. They probably read its reports today online. So, but I think that that's been a key to the growth of the game, to changes in the game, the swing from a, a game that was predominantly running to a game that's predominantly passing. And I, and I think the other huge factor, with, aside from how the competition committee has been an effective steward of the rules of the game, is the change in the athletes. Athletes today are very different from athletes 40 years ago, just in terms of size, skill, speed, and, and, and a sense of invulnerability that comes from being looking like bionic men and the equipment that they're using. So you have to take all those things into account as you look at the rules changes. Um, talking about basketball, Georgetown, uh, you, congratulations, by the way, and nobody knows this, but but he is the the other 33 on the Georgetown University basketball team. You're in the Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Well, number 33 is in the Hall of Fame, which was the number that I wore when I played at Georgetown. So who else? Some, somebody else wore it? It was also worn by Patrick Ewing, and uh, I only got in the Hall of Fame after he wore it, not me. Got it. Understood. But you had the rebound record for a long time at Georgetown. Yes, right? yes. And, and, and also, more relevant to this, through 2008 to 11, you were you were chairman of the board of trustees and on the board for a long time. So you have a perspective of college athletics that few people do. Overall take of where college athletics is today and where it's going. Well, I think overall college college athletics are are solid and uh, an important part of uh, the you know higher education. I think that the balance between academics and and commerce could use some tweaking. 
and uh, as you know, I'm a member of the Knight Commission, and the Knight Commission has been working with the NCAA to, to try and have an influence on redirecting some of the revenues that come from athletics to, to broader purposes. And, and I think the other aspect that needs more attention is the, the scholarship system, because the athletes, especially in Division One football and basketball, are committing so much time now to athletics. I think the scholarship should be more than four years. It might be five, five six, or even seven years. And the athletes should be rewarded in ways that, that take account of their academic performance, not just their performance in football or basketball. And that would apply to both men and women's sports. What's the biggest change since you've left that you've noticed, structurally, on-field, off-field, whatever? Well, I think the biggest change for the NFL and for the other professional and amateur sports, for that matter, the collegiate, is is the way media has exploded and the, and the way media has become uh, available to everybody through, through the Internet technology and digital technology and, and the proliferation of devices that we referred to earlier. The social media has become a major factor in the way people communicate at all levels, in all contexts, and, 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 it, and it exposes everybody to criticism on a targeted basis. And as we found out in the last year or two, it can also be manipulated and misused by foreign countries. So I think I think if you look at, like, as I said, when I left, the iPhone and, and social media like Facebook hadn't even started up. Now they, they dominate our daily lives. You can't be in a conversation without someone saying, well, let me look, let me, let me look at my phone and see what the answer to that is. That's a, that's a big change. If and when you sit down with Roger Goodell, do you basically tell him the game is in good hands or do you say we've got to make the following changes? No, I, my, my perspective with Rogers, I think the game is in good hands. And, uh, you know, the, the game on the field is really strong. And that, that's the critical thing. And that's a, that's a tribute to the college game. It's a tribute to the players in the NFL who have not been changed by the money that's in the game today, the salaries they get. You still have people competing as if it's a life and death competition, which in some cases uh, for, for people's employment, it is, yeah. can be the end of a career. Uh, because they get cut, but the game is fantastic. The, the number of young, really good young quarterbacks right now is exciting. You've done okay with yourself for the first seventy plus years of your life. What about the next seventy plus? I'm looking at the next seventy plus, <laughs> not the next seventy. But I, 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 I just want to keep looking at the life through the front windshield and not through the rearview mirror. That's been my philosophy since I retired, and I, I think it's been worthwhile. The game is in good hands, and I'm incredibly honored to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Obviously, Paul, with an amazing perspective, and the uh, items now shift to soccer. The interesting uh, headline of the week is that the MLS announced its next franchise, St. Louis, and its new 22,000-seat stadium in the downtown West District, 120 feet of translucent canopy, and on and on. David Beckham's Inter-Miami opens up with a new national club next year, Austin FC 2021. Then the St. Louis club makes its debut, all effectively because of the MLS commissioner, uh, Don Garber. Garber's perspective is from an NFL dealmaker to Soccer Don, as he's called now, and the franchises have gone up to the 300 million plus range uh, before uh, 20 years ago, as he starts, by the way, his 21st year as the commissioner of the MLS, the, he, his celebrated 20th anniversary on August 4. Here's Don Garber. So, Commissioner, it's really important. Two things. Congratulations. First of all, being in the sport business handbook, which is more important to me than it is to you, but there are a lot of other people in there. And second of all, August 4, 20 years. Yeah. So... August 4, 1999, any idea that you'd be here 20 years from now presiding over a league where the average franchise value is $240 million and probably more because Forbes always underestimates? Yeah, I mean, never. I never expected it, Rick. So it's been a great 20-year ride. It's been hard, uh, but enormously fulfilling. The league's in a great spot thanks to our owners and you know, all the people that believe in Major League Soccer, from our fans to our players to all of our administrators. Well, watching the dynamic of a meeting like this and just sitting back and watching how you comfortably preside as any veteran commissioner slash CEO would preside over a group that has ultimate confidence in you. Uh, it, it's got to be rewarding where, I don't want to minimize it, but a lot of this is on automatic pilot and you can say something in a meeting and people will understand that that's the way it is without questioning it. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> no, that's not true. I think it's getting, a theory, it's getting better. You know, the longer you're in it, Rick, I remember David Stern yeah. once told me that 
you know, his life got easy when every single team that was around the table he had brought in. Yeah. So you have a relationship with uh, with those clubs from the time they're interested in coming into Major League Soccer through their purchase process to their ongoing engagement with their uh, with their club and with their city. So you know, I know them all. I've known them all for a long time. When the other leagues, and I'm really not, this is not about comparing you to the other leagues, although we could make a great pro rata case over the last 20 years. We won't do that because you're not going to take the bait. 20 stadiums, seven new stadiums, $3 billion in construction, your people say. And when other commissioners take the lead, it's a, well, we got existing stadiums, so we'll get around to trying to figure it out. You were kind of on the hot seat early. You understood how important stadiums were to your deal, and you had to get a public-private partnership done in a model that it never worked before. Yeah, I mean, for sure, Rick. I mean, that is the story of our league over the last 20 years. Certainly one of the big stories. You know, billions and billions and billions of dollars invested in infrastructure, not just stadiums, but training grounds. And, uh, you know, that creates permanence and it creates a home for our fans and our players. And so the whole thing also, it's not just marketing, but it's substance behind marketing. Did you ever think that James Harden would be a significant piece of driving up the enterprise value of the MLS? I never did, and I'm happy he has. <laughs> it's amazing, but, but it happens all yeah, over the country, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely. And so television issues, Eric Shanks here today, other television executives understand as well the, the whole issue of where the television's going. But yet there's more product, there's more diversity, there's Sinclair, there's RSNs, and that's whole, that whole world. Yeah, I mean, it, listen, we're in the live the content business. Live content's driving a lot of the energy in the over-the-top OTT world. Uh, the fact that we have a very young fan base that's very sanguine in the world of digital absorption and engagement, uh, I think it bodes well for us. One more comment that's interesting after watching you as a veteran adeptly, incredibly adeptly, adeptly uh, uh, fielding expansion questions relative to the people that, notwithstanding the fact you're not going to give it, want a commitment, not only today and where and how much and whatever, but it's got to be heartening to know that you got you got m- way more bidders and way more interest than you have spots. Yeah, I think it's a credit, Rick, to where soccer in America is, you know, that it's a good value proposition for those who are interested in investing in sports. The sport is on the rise. We've got the World Cup coming in in 2026. We've got lots and lots of energy around Major League Soccer, and you put all those things together, and successful people who've got money to invest and have a passion for sport and a particular passion for soccer, it seems to be a really good opportunity for them. Yes and no. I mean, the no is, yeah, it's, it's an environment of soccer, but over the last 10 years, you go from $30 million expansion fee to 300. What's that number? It's a, it's a big, like, it's 100,000%. I don't know what the number is, but it's a pretty significant percent, and it's market-driven. Yeah, I mean, it, it is driven by sort of the, the increase in opportunity. Yeah. I don't think it's just about bidders. I've heard that story before. I don't care how many bidders you have. Yeah. If something's yeah. not valuable, really smart people are not going to bid on it. Just yeah. because there are a lot of them doesn't mean that it's going to drive up prices. Right? That's just basic economics. A couple of quickies. What, what do you say when people point to the $3.5 billion value of like Real Madrid and Barcelona and Man U, um, and they say the value here is – Smaller, obviously, you got 30 teams. It's the largest. uh, It it, it speaks to the opportunity, Rick. I mean, if you can own a soccer team and and, uh, in in a in La Liga in Spain or own it in England with Arsenal, then they're going to be valuable. Part of it is because the popularity of the sport. We're going to work hard to make MLS more popular so our teams become more valuable. So, in 2026, when the World Cup is here, are you still running MLS? Uh, I doubt that. Wow, that was a pretty, pretty damn candid answer. <laughs> I think I probably got more of a candid answer than you give to anybody else. But obviously, the league continues to move yeah. forward in the legacy. Yeah. Well. yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that there's been – I mean, I think that would be, what, almost 30 years or something like that. I don't see that happening. Yeah, well, but you've created an incredible legacy. No, it would, so. be, uh, yeah, it would be 28 years. So that's a long time. It's, 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 a, it's a long time for anything. So a hundredth of the greatest uh, 50 years of the sports business, a hundred people. Um, again, I really, really, really appreciate and am honored that you're in this book. And the book is, uh, is better for having you in it. Great. Well, finally, let's round out Major League Baseball. Ripken Baseball and ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex announced a partnership that will bring elite youth baseball tournaments to Walt Disney World beginning in 2020. 11 ball fields, six youth side fields. The important perspective here is that Cal Ripken and his folks get to work with Disney, and obviously it's all about the kids. One of the reasons that's easy to do is new commissioner, or at least let's say two-year commissioner, Rob Manford, taking over from 
from Bud Selig. He's brought consensus, stability, and a whole bunch of different perspectives to Major League Baseball. Certainly challenges remain, but Rob Manfred very capable of handling it. Here's Rob Manfred. Commissioner Rob Manfred, so it's September of 1959, and it's your first birthday party, and you're sitting there, I assume, in Rome, New York. And were you thinking at that time that you'd end up being commissioner of baseball 50 or so years later? Uh, I'll be honest with you. I didn't think I was going to be commissioner of baseball when I went to work for MLB in 1998 and probably didn't even think that 10 years later. It was really not my goal. Um, when I went to work for baseball, I was focused on improving what had been uh, a really sorry state of labor relations, and that was really my goal. It's not an otherly comparison, but it is an interesting uh, parallel career track with basketball and hockey and in football that, uh, at least with Paul Tagliabue and, of course, Gary and David Stern, you don't start out intending to be commissioner. You start out at a law firm. You end up working for that league through that law firm, and then the rest is history. Interesting dynamic, isn't it? It is. It is. I, I think that um, you've seen a change yeah. in that area. Um, I mean, I think at one point in history, uh, it was common for leagues to take outsiders, outside yeah. lawyers, whatever. Um, I see the current generation of commissioners a little bit different. Adam, myself, Roger, all came up through the ranks. I mean, I started as an outside lawyer, but I was there for 14 years inside before I was elected. Is there an automatic time where you raise your hand and say, all right, it's been 14 years, I've paid my dues, here it is. Adam, a little bit, Roger, six to 18 years and counting? Yeah. It, no, I, I mean, I, look, it, it happens organically, right? I mean, people start to talk about it in the business, people start to write about it, and that's really how you become a candidate. You are, at this point, um, the, one of the valuable perceptions is not a whole lot of people know you, and I don't mean that as a negative, but there's certainly advantages not to be the lightning rod. Mm -hmm. Give us an idea of of what you do day to day, the important stuff you do day to day. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a routine person yeah. um, in terms of my daily activities. Um, you know, I try to begin the day with some exercise. Um, I'm pretty religious about that. Um, during the season, I get to the office. The first thing I do is review the replays from the night before. Mm. Uh, I think our replay system is a fantastic piece of technology, and um, it, it is actually fun to look at the videos and decide whether I could have gotten it right with or without uh, super slow motion. Um, and then, you know, my in a routine day in the office, um, I spend a lot of time with my six direct reports. I have a lot of really strong people. Um, that work with me on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, if I can get through the six of them in a day, I have a pretty good idea about what's going on in the business. And, and so Bud Selig, among his other wonderful legacy items, he was known as a, a great communicator. Mm -hmm. And the rumor was he talked to every owner every day. Not possible. There's not enough time to do all of that. <laughs> how important is, is communicating? Certainly, it's important to know what the owners want. Mm -hmm. But how important is direct communication to the owners? Uh, direct communication with the owners is crucial. I mean, there, there's 30 of them. They are your constituency. Um, I keep a, a little tracking sheet so that, you know, if somebody goes a while and I haven't spoken th mm. to them in the ordinary course, just routine business, I do try to reach out and make sure that, that, that I've been in touch with each of the 30 in relatively short periods of time. Once a day, I think was an exaggeration with Bud and probably <laughs> not possible for me in terms of work schedule. We do try to communicate different ways. Um, you, you know, uh, we have taken to a uh, monthly update for our owners directed specifically to them as to what we're doing in the office, what's going on, what we think's happening in the industry. Um, and I do use email and more modern forms of communication that Bud was not enamored of. What, what do you think your, your legal and, and business role is relative to the labor union? Your bosses are the owners, right? and are your labor, are they partners, or are they allies? They're certainly not adversaries relative to labor peace these days, so right. characterize. Look, we, I think we have a positive traditional yeah. union management relationship with the MLBPA. Um, we've worked very hard within the normal construct the labor relations that, that that's laid out under federal law to have a positive working relationship um, to foster the notion among our players that working together is the best way to grow the business and so you've been obviously involved with baseball let me get the the numbers right 28 years but 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 full-time 18 um, 19 no I started full-time in 98 so 17 years and then CEO for a little brief time right. until that was redefined um, 
what have you discovered as commissioner that you didn't expect? Well, I think the, the most the two things that, that really have struck me. Number one, you have to be so much more careful about what you say, particularly what you say publicly. Um, you know, in the various roles that I had since I came inside, I would do public things, but people didn't pay that much attention to them. Um, you, you know, now you, you have to be real careful uh, about what you say. And secondly, it's just the time demands are very, very different. Um, it uh, th There's a certain sort of public aspect to the job, uh, but I am am and remain a task person. You know, I, yeah. there are things that, that I need to get done in the office, and balancing those two things is tricky. It's that linear thinking that, that we're taught as lawyers. Right, <laughs> right. That's, right. That's the bottom line. There's a problem, you got to solve it. Right. <laughs> got to solve it. Let's do real quick, because um, you can't solve all of these today, but let's do uh, um, rapid-fire substance for a couple okay. of minutes. Um, Hall of Fame, uh, steroid user Hall of Fame issues long term. I um, think it's a writer issue. Um, there's always been issues with respect to individual players that the writers have to sort out, and that's their job. Oakland A's, San Jose, Bay Area stadium issues. Uh, Want to see a new facility, preferably in Oakland. Uh, World Baseball Classic. Huge fan of the World Baseball Classic. I think it's the key to the internationalization of the game and intend to continue to grow the product. 154-game schedule. Uh, huge economic issue for us. Uh, lost TV revenue, lost gates, but something that's at least worth thinking about. Length of games. I think that it is a topic that we will continue to work on. I think we're off to a great start on it. Great player cooperation this year has produced good results. Can you hit a curveball? No. Okay. <laughs> what excites you about baseball? You're a fan? I'm a huge fan. Um, you know, I'll tell you, the, the first experience that I had walking into a ballpark was uh, walking up into the bowl and seeing the actual field at Yankee Stadium. How old were you? I was 10 mm -hmm. at the time, it was 1968. Is the most important thing you want baseball fans to know about you? What I think, uh, I want fans to come to understand that we're open to discussing change in the game, um, we're prepared to consider new ideas, and we're also prepared to admit that some of the ideas we may have out there don't turn out to be right. So it, January 25 this year was your your uh, your, your D-Day. Right. It was nice. It was a Sunday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of hard to know what to do on that Sunday. Yeah, but the media found you anyway. <laughs> right. So the fifth year anniversary of your commissionership, so 2020, mm -hmm. uh, what will you have done? I, I hope that um, we will have reclaimed um, the next generation for baseball. I think the most important challenge for us is to make sure that we pass on to the next generation of fans baseball the way that our parents passed it on to us. Try to hit that curveball. It's going to help you. I will. Well, it gives you a sense both globally and domestically of the kind of leadership that American sports has from Paul Tagliabue and now Oliver Luck on the football side to Mark Tatum, uh, David Stern, Adam Silver on the NBA side, Gary Bettman with the NHL, Don Garber with the MLS, and obviously Rob Manford, Major League Baseball, the best in the business, the best of, clearly, but let's remember how important all of these other items are as we continue to keep score. I'm the sports professor, Rick Harrow. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score, assistance provided by Carlos Swadek. Tanner Simpkins, Reuters Digital. I'm Ricaro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.